I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to read, we've printed, uh, if you're new to Christianity and aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed the text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take a Bible home with you and have God's Word. Just grab one of those pew Bibles and take it with you. We've started in the worship guide on verse 11, but if you've got your Bibles, we're going to, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 to set this up. This is God's Word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his feed field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is God's word. We should ask his blessing on his word preached. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we want to see your face. We want to have your countenance shine on us. We want to experience the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, it is him that we want to hear. And so draw near to us by your spirit and through your word and enliven our hearts. Enrich us with your grace. Cause our eyes to fall on your tremendous love towards us. And then we would rejoice all the more. For you are a savior for sinners like us. And so we pray this in your name, our savior. Amen. Verse 1 sets the stage. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And then they grumble because Jesus was eating with them and saying, this man, what a pejorative term, this man, 
receives sinners and eats with them. It's, a, it's quite a powerful combination of words. There are, there are two Greek words that could be translated easily as received. One, children, if you think about it, if you ask your classmate or your sibling for a pencil, you would receive that pencil from them. You're just receiving an object. That's one word that could be translated at receive. The other is, is like when your mother receives you onto her lap. You know, there's such a deep love, such a deep acceptance and embrace. There's such approval and delight when your mother receives you. And you see, that's the word that is being used here. And it's, it's what eating functioned like in the ancient Near East. It's why these two are combined together. To have someone at your table meant that you accepted them so deeply that they belonged to you. And it's why it was most scandalous. It's why they're grumbling that the most shameful found Jesus to be someone who they could draw near to, who would receive them and invite them to his table. As Jeff so beautifully pointed out a couple weeks ago, imagine a busload of prostitutes or a busload of Taliban members pulling up to our church. This is what was going on in the context of sinners and tax collectors eating with Jesus and him receiving them. But do you see what is going on here is Jesus is revealing the heart of God towards sinners The primary character in this parable isn't the younger son or the older son. And we're going to call this series the the parable of the two sons because that's what Jesus says in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And what's, what's going on is that Jesus is revealing the heart of the father, that God's heart, the father's heart is being revealed through the son And as is often the case, you really want to know who you are. Put yourself in the context of those who you find most difficult or most distasteful to be around. And here is the heart of God being revealed towards sinners. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And he received them and ate with them. Perhaps the pinnacle of food shows is when the world-renowned chef and culinary expert Anthony Bourdain discovered the Waffle House. It was a, it's an amazing episode where, where a world-renowned chef travels all over the world, gets invited by another chef to the Waffle House. This is how he describes it. It is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. For everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. It's warm, yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered all across the South to come inside, a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful. 
always there for you. He found in the Waffle House just a shadow of what the kingdom of Jesus is in reality. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells them a parable. In verse 3, that's how we're introduced to this. He tells them a parable, and it's actually a series of three parables, all hammering home the same point. This is probably the most known of Jesus' parables, where we pick up in chapter 15, verse 11. Even if you're not a Christian, you may have grown up around the church. You may probably have some familiarity with this parable. But let me suggest that our familiarity with it might betray us. Because this parable isn't primarily about just one bad son who did a bad thing and went out into the world and the father received him back. This is a parable about two sons. Verse 11, and there was a man who had two sons, not one who was lost and one who was at home and a father who welcomes the younger one. It is a parable about two sons because Jesus is at this moment speaking to both audiences, both to the tax collectors and sinners who are finding him to be a welcoming savior and the those who are on the outside grumbling that he was so. And Jesus tells a parable about two ways to avoid God and primarily about God's heart to the lost, to the irreligious and the religious, to the outsiders and the insiders who both take up arms against God and whose heart God is moved to move out towards. If you grew up in the church or around the church, you were most likely walked away with the sense of the gospel. It's just simply Jesus died to get rid of my guilt. And that's a huge part of the gospel. Look, if that's if that is an essential part of the gospel, if our guilt isn't taken away, we reside under the judgment of God. And the only way to remove our guilt before God is by the blood of God's own son. That's good news. But then what? Because I think we most of us walk around with this deep sense of, I'm not enough. I haven't done enough. I've left too many things undone, and it often translates into the hard drug that most of us are addicted to, and it's this. My worth is based on my performance. I know, I, many of you have heard me tell repeatedly that I have this internal story that runs through my head all the time. When I perform, then I'll be loved. We're addicted to this hard drug, all of us. And it all is an addiction. That's the moral people think their worth is based on their performance. I've, I've earned it. So I'm now somebody. Look what I've done in this world. And, and then there's those who've just given up on that solution and think, I'm just going to enter into brokenness. Now, the other side of that is, in order to get my worth back, I've got to perform. I've got to become a good person. And so the research on lying is fascinating. For instance, men will lie more about women 
when it comes to their achievements. Men like to lie about their achievements. Women will lie to protect other people. That's sort of the, the data on this. But here's what's fascinating to most of us. In fact, all of us will believe, we're most prone to believe lies in our area of ambition. For instance, if I want to be, if I've attached my worth to my beauty, then I will be prone to believe someone when they tell me that I think uh, that I'm thin or pretty, even if I'm not. Even if I know I'm not, I'm, I'm prone to believe that. That's my area of ambition. If I want to be smart, I'm most likely to believe compliments geared towards my intelligence, even though they might be lies. It doesn't matter. I'll believe you because you are buying into my worth economy. When I perform, then I'll be loved. I need to get my act together. Even, even though we've developed an age of social media and the internet, very sophisticated lie radar, we shut it down completely when we want to believe something in our area of ambition. And that's because, let me suggest, we all wish that we were someone different. I think this is the most important parable that Jesus tells. In fact, I think if you don't understand this parable, you don't understand the whole of the Bible, right? This parable is the whole message of the Bible because it reveals to us God's heart towards sinner. The whole of the Bible is a story of God's heart moving towards sinners to alleviate shame. That's the arc of the Bible story from shame in Genesis 3 to glory just as we finished our series in Revelation 22 that's the arc of the Bible because that's the arc that our hearts are crying out for and that is what God is revealing here so notice how Jesus defines redemption here in this parable as he is revealing the heart of God towards sinners God goes out. It's a very different approach to redemption. Most of us think that we need to move up. We need to get our acts together. We need to solve these problems. We need to move up. But God goes out. The younger brother finds, as we'll see, we're going to focus on him. That's the part we read. The younger brother goes out. He runs from the father. But there's a whole eight verses that we did not read before this parable ends with the Yelder brother being on the outside himself. And that's how we typically divide the world. There are the good people and the bad people. Those who have had their act together, those who have ruined their lives. But Jesus presents a different way, a unique way. He levels the playing field and puts us all in that same category. And he shows us that the heart of God is such that he will not let us pursue at any level a project of self-salvation. He introduces a, a different economy. And I think at the heart of all of our hearts, there is this lie that is sown into us from the very beginning. And it's this. God is not willing to bless, that he is not kind, that he does not freely embrace in love. And so the younger son goes out. He buys the lie. 
The younger son goes out looking for blessings apart from God. The younger son stays home and uses the things that he has to indebt the father to him. The younger son goes out and he comes to this realization that the downward spiral is miserable. He comes up with, though, notice this in verse 17, he's realized I've sold myself into misery. And so his solution, verse 17, is awkward. He comes to himself. We might say he come to his senses or he hit rock bottom. He realized this isn't working out like I thought it would. And so here's his plan. I'm going to go back home and I'm going to ask my father to hire me on as a servant. Literally a craftsman. He doesn't say, I've enjoyed the path that led sin down. Now I've, I've reached the natural consequences. You might think at this point in verse 17 that the younger son is repenting, but he still hasn't turned from the core of his ways because what is still lacking is that his sin is against the father. He's still stuck. This is against me. I've got to fix it. I've ruined my life. I've got to get to my act together. His cure, if you want to put that in air quotes, is still self-motivated. There's no sense of deep shame or grief that he has pained his father's heart. And so he practices a speech. It's crafted and rehearsed to get him what he wants. And he's making an offer to his father. Let me work my way back into your favor. Practices. Fathers, I've sinned against heaven and earth and no longer worried to become your son. Let me come into your house and be a servant. You see what he's saying is in the ancient world, there were three levels of relationships. There was at the very bottom, a slave who had no rights. He did what he was commanded. And often a slave had sold himself into slavery to pay debt. He was a bond servant in this day and age. There's the man at the bottom. The next level up was a craftsman. A craftsman worked so that he could earn a wage. And at the top was a son. A son had all the rights and privileges of the home. And you notice the younger son doesn't humble himself and ask to come back as a slave. There's still so much pride in him. Let me come back as a servant. Train me. Let me earn my way back into your favor. He's essentially bargaining with the father. You do your part. I'll do my part. Together, we'll fix this thing. You throw in a little bit, I'll throw in a little bit. I think together we can, we can manage this mess that I've made out of my life. And it's normal. Which of us doesn't think this way? I've made a mess. I need to clean it up. I mean, there's some of you today who are keeping God at a distance just until you can get your life back together to a degree that you can get on better on the treadmill of earning your worth. God, if you'll help me with that. Maybe it's a hidden sin in your life that you think I deal with, then God will accept me back. You don't like the circumstances you find yourself in, and so you're willing to make a bargain with God. I failed desperately, but if you take me back, I'll serve you faithfully from here on out. I've sinned against you again. I promised I'd never do it. If this, if just this time, I know I've asked a thousand times, will you forgive me and take me back again? I promise you I'll serve you faithfully from here on out. You notice what the father does. The father literally 
does not let him get those words out of his mouth. He stops him, shuts him off. He had practiced the speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven and earth. Let me come back and be a servant. The father stops him in his tracks because God will have nothing to do with that kind of thinking. He will not bargain with you because he will not allow you to restore yourself. That's not the economy of Jesus's kingdom. You see, the father does a remarkable thing. It's, it's, and, and quite honestly, it's scandalous, but this is the heart of God's heart. He welcomes the son back while his son is still in his self-consumed state. The story turns on verse 20. It's the fulcrum of the parable. Everything builds up to verse 20. Verse 20 resolves the tension. It's the point. This is God's heart. And he arose, the younger son who had scandalized his life, ruined everything, sought after his own pleasure, sold his father's riches. And when he arose, he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father saw him. He's, he's on the horizon. He's just before the son even sees the home that he's willing to come back and earn his right back into. The father sees him. Well, he's a long way off. And then he felt compassion. Literally, his bowels were turning inside of him. That's a very vivid image in the original Greek. His bowels were moved, his inside. You've had this experience, have you not? When you're, you felt such, your gut just sink in a moment. He felt deeply the shame that the younger son was experiencing. It didn't leave him unmoved. It moved him in the deepest part of his being. His bowels are literally turning inside as he sees the sun and he feels the shame and he's moved in compassion. And he welcomes him. And he kisses him and he embraces him. We'll see in a minute just how scandalous this would have been. You imagine this in the ancient Near East, particularly in the Jewish culture at the time, there was a custom that dictated when a son had spent the family wealth amongst Gentiles, as the son had done. A ceremony would have been enacted that symbolized that he was cut off from his community. It was a shame-shunning ceremony. The son would have had to sit outside when he came back. He would have had to sit outside the community walls and waited and waited. Well, everyone's looking at him. Do you know what he's done? See the wreck that he's made out of his life? See what he did to his father? And he would have had to sit there in that shame in public, everyone seeing him. And then the father, he would have had to wait for the father to come out. And the father, the angry father, would have would have waited sometimes days, 
to impress on him, to grind the shame into his heart. And then the son would have had to plead publicly for mercy. The whole goal was to shame the son. And once the son was sufficiently shamed, he would have been sent then to a neighboring community where he would then earn his way back into his family's favor. There he would have served as a servant. Now you can understand why the younger son is practicing this on the way home. He knows the shame ceremony that's awaiting him. He's feeling in his internal sense of shame. You are worth nothing because of what you have done. And the community would have, would have enforced that, make you feel even worse. Some of you know this feeling. All of us know this feeling, whether we admit it or not. It is so deep in our souls. It is the way we work in this world. And you know why he's wanting to earn his way back to the father to embrace his son. Some of you remember what it was like for the veterans who fought hard in World War II to come back to ticker tape parades, celebrating their heroism. The things that they would have left on the line, many of our armed forces have not been celebrated in that way, should have been not been celebrated on. They earned, but they had earned their right to be celebrated. But you see what's going on here is that the father's reaction would have been like welcoming home a traitor who would have taken the tanks and weapons and secrets of America straight to Hitler. And when he had come back to the United States, instead of being court-martialed and shamed, he would have been celebrated and received as a hero. And that's what the father does. It's a shocking turn. The father notices him a long way off. He's scanning the horizon, looking to protect the son from the shame that awaits him. And when the father sees the son, he doesn't wait for the son to sit outside the city gates and experience the shame of the community. He runs out. He protects him. Dignified old men in the ancient Near East don't run. You have to hike up your skirt, put it in your belt, bare your legs, walk with dignity and honor. Look what I'm worth in this world. You should know this father ran out. It was embarrassing for him to do this. It was shameful for him to do this. But do you see what he's doing? The father is taking the son's shame to himself. He's absorbing the son's shame. Let me be shamed so that you don't have to be. And you see, this is exactly what Jesus was done on the cross. He shamed. He became sin. He became our sin. He was cut off in our place. He was cut off outside the city gates. The God that we dismissed in our sin, every moment of our, even as we're running the, the tail through our heads, when I perform, then I'll be loved. The God that we dismiss, even as that's running through our heads, it, we may not have gone out and found ourselves in brothels and selling all that we have in destitute positions in both instances. The God that we have dismissed, dismissed, this is the heart of the gospel, has become our protection from our shame. The death and resurrection of Jesus is in our place as our substitute. His death bearing our shame and his resurrection bestowing honor on us. Both are ours because we are in Christ. 
This is what it means to be in Christ. What's true about Jesus is true about you. In God's house, the only economy available to us is an economy of grace. The son can't come back and earn his way back to his father. It can't be earned. No honor can be earned in God's household. It can only be given, and it is given freely by Jesus. You see, we fall into this trap of thinking one of two things. Either I'm sinless and valuable, or I'm sinful and worthless. Either I perform and I'm valuable and worth something, or I don't perform and I'm worthless. But the gospel says to us, in Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and valuable at the same time. Because I'm united to Jesus in his death, bearing my sin on the cross. And I'm also united to him in his resurrection as he's seated at the right hand and the father adoring him so that Jesus can say, just as my father loved you, love me, so I love you. The shame of the son is welcomed by the loving, shame, dissipating, honor, and grace of the father. And the father throws a party. He insists, insists that the son be clothed with his best robe and do so quickly. He doesn't just say, look, I'm going to save you from the shame ceremony. I'm bringing you all the way back into my house. I don't want anyone to see you in these rags. And so go get my best clothes and put it on them quickly before he experiences any more shame. Let him experience my honor, be given to him, bestowed on him, put it on him, put my ring on his finger, put my shoes on his feet, restore him to full honor, and don't waste any time. And that's why in Christ, God's grace always, always, always returns us to the top. Not halfway up, not one rung, and then the next rung. The younger son gets the father's ring. He gets the father's robe. He gets the father's sandals. He gets the father's fattened calf. It's lavish love. It's far from what he deserved. It is what the father deserved, and he gives it freely. And so you see the opposite of shame is not no shame. The opposite of shame is honor. And that's why we have that story running through our heads. When I'm celebrated, when I perform, then I'll be loved, then I'll be celebrated. So God at the cross in Jesus Christ doesn't just say, I'll take your shame from you, now perform. He says, I'll take your shame for you and give you the honor of my son. And just as my son is in my household, so are you. One of my favorite authors, Robert Murray McShane, says this. The father sees no sin in you because as Christ is, so are you in this world. You're judged by God according to what the secured payment of the son is so that because of Christ. God's love will be with you in that day. You will feel the smile of the Father. You will hear the voice of Jesus come, you blessed of my Father. And then he draws that near. He says, now learn to fear nothing between this life and judgment. Just bring that clear. That's what will be announced on the day that you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're white as wool, no longer stained by sin. He says, just grab hold of that and bring it into this present reality. Because as Christ is, so you are. And so you see how this ends. It ends with the Father having the last word. 
not the son. It's not his rehearsed speech that has the last word. It's the father who has the last word. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. It's how he ends the first parable, but how he ends the second parable, and is how he speaks to the older brother in the last parable. It is fitting. There is nothing more right than to celebrate because this is my heart. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is fallen. So if you want to be honored, if you really want to be celebrated in this life, come with your rebellion in your hands. The God who you have offended will take it, clothe you with Jesus, and then throw a big party. Now, I got to tell you, it is so easy for me to abstract myself from this story. I'm not the younger son. I'm not the older son. I don't, we're, we're, and actually, I'm a little bit of both, to be honest with you. There's a lot of both in me. It's not the point. The point is, this is the heart of God to you. You don't have to figure out which of these two you are. You have to look on the face of the God who is telling this parable to us through his son. You see, the thing that I think keeps most of us from experiencing the joy of God isn't our sin. It's our pretending. Imagine coming into a waiting room of the emergency room and everyone there's just saying, you know, you're in the emergency room of Murray Regional and you walk in the door and everyone's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, just not, I, I can take care of myself. There's really nothing that seriously wrong with me. You would look around the room and be like, why are you here? It's silly to pretend you're fine when you are at the place where healing occurs. But what if... What if you knew when you got to the emergency room that it wouldn't be a long wait on sick people and them questioning whether you really need to be seen there or not? What if when you walked into the emergency room, the doctors and nurses threw a party that you had finally come to be healed and restored? You would come with wounds on your mouth ready to announce them. Because they would be welcomed with joy. Here's what's wrong with me. Oh, look at he's here to be healed and redeemed. Throw a part. Oh, I can tell you something else that's wrong with me. Oh, look, he's here to be redeemed and restored. Oh, well, I'll tell you one more thing that's wrong with me. That is the right for those who come by faith in Jesus. To be welcomed by the Father's heart every time with joy. Because Jesus died the traitor's death so that you could become a righteous son. And you realize, if God has done that for those, it would be the greatest injustice for the Father not to receive you that way. Not because you have performed but by being one with Jesus, you have all of the honor of the Son. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. Let's pray. 
Lord, as we come to your table, it is with, we'll sing those who are in Christ. And so may your joy over us create new waves of joy in us. And because we're so prone to forget and so quick to believe the lie that when we perform, then we're loved, would you remind us with these ordinary elements of bread and wine that we're at the table of a king He is so glad that we are here with him. And help us to look forward to the day when this is no longer by faith, but is by sight when we sit at the wedding feast of our bridegroom, the lamb who was slain for our sins. We pray this, our Savior, in your name. Amen.